Jesus was controversial. I wonder if you've ever thought of him in that way. Now, he wasn't controversial for the sake of controversy. He's not like some social media personality who who says controversial things just to sort of stir up interest and try to have some sort of viral following. But make no mistake, Jesus was controversial. So controversial that eventually people wanted to kill him because of the things that he was saying and doing. So think about it. One must be quite controversial in order for you to want to end their life. But the controversial statements that Jesus made were at the very heart of the good news, at the very heart of why he had come. And today in our passage, we're going to see some of these controversial statements. In fact, some of the more obscure ones and why it is good news for us today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 12. Now you can find it on page 816, the Bibles we provided near you. You can also open up a Bible app. I encourage you to have something open just so you can follow along. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, we're in chapter 12. The larger number is the chapter number. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those throughout our time together, starting in verse 1. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a stack of Bibles there. There's a sign by it. This is free Bibles. So stop by there following the service. Just grab one of those Bibles. Take it with you this morning as our gift to you. Matthew 12, beginning verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat or for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Follow Jesus, who brings us into a living faith where he gives rest and he brings restoration. And we'll look at our passage in the two scenes that we see in the text. First, we'll see accusation. And then second, restoration. Accusation and restoration. We'll spend most of our time on the first of the two scenes. 
So first we see accusation in verses 1 through 8. If you're with us last week, in, in the chapter just before this, we saw Jesus in chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, extend this beautiful invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we saw that Jesus invites people like us to come and find deep, replenishing, lasting, even eternal rest. And then today our text picks up on the Sabbath, which was the day of rest and worship. It was observed by the Jewish people from sunset Friday until sunset on Saturday. The roots of Sabbath go all the way back to Genesis, where God created in six days and then he rested on the seventh. Not that God needed to rest like we do, but it was a picture that he had completed this glorious creation and he set this resting, this ceasing from work as a pattern, as a gift for his people as we live in this world. Later then, God would choose a people, the children of Israel, and he would make them his chosen nation. He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. It was all of grace that he saved them, that he delivered them. And then after saving them, then he gave them guidelines, commands on how they were to live in this world in relation to their covenants, God. And in the midst of that, we have what we call the Ten Commandments. And one of those commandments speaks to this idea of Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11 says this. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So this Sabbath day was ordained by God to be set apart to God. The people of God were to work for six days, but then on that seventh, to cease and to do no working. And by choosing to rest, they would acknowledge their trust in God, believing that God would bless six days of work more than seven days of work if they would honor him by resting on the seventh. And we see in the Sabbath a a close connection among God's people of both rest and worship. And this weekly practice of Sabbath was tremendously significant to God's people. For them, a source of substantial meaning and great joy. It was also a a marker that marked them out from all the surrounding nations, for, for no one else did this. So especially as Jews were scattered into to other nations and they lived in the midst of them, it would be noticeable when everyone else is going about their seven-day week, but the Jews are, are ceasing worship on the Sabbath day. Now in time, in addition to these commands from God, additional teachings, regulations, traditions grew up around the original teaching. And some, or perhaps most of them, were certainly from a good intention. The motivation was likely something like this. Our our Lord has told us not to work on the Sabbath. We want to make sure that we don't work. So maybe we should set some barriers 
wider than that to keep us from working. And then an additional set out here. And then further and further, they're constructing this fence around this command. But these additional teachings are not scriptural. They're not God's commands, but they're created by people, regulations that have been added. So one instruction after another was added, and eventually there became these really complex and intricate guidelines around the Sabbath. And this is what happens with what we call legalism. Legalism is when we, when, when people create moral standards that are beyond what the Scriptures say, and we require these of ourselves or of others in order to be in right standing with God. So it's adding rules that we think we must keep ourselves or that others must keep. Now, some of the Jewish leaders, leaders like the Pharisees in our text, help to develop and also to enforce these commands and these regulations. And these Pharisees that we see in our text, we, we want to be, be aware of that in that day, they were highly respected, even admired for their devotion to God. Now, they, a lot of people perhaps thought of them as a sort of other, superior in some ways, but they, they were seen as these are the people who really know God because of their lives of devotion. And in our passage today, we see that Jesus and his disciples are walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath day. And as they're walking along, some of his disciples evidently are hungry. They begin to pick some of the grain and then to eat it. As they did this, the Pharisees saw it, and they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. It's worth noting that it's a little bit odd. So Jesus and his disciples are walking somewhere, and the Pharisees just happen to be right there to see. They're keeping an eye. They're watching closely the actions of Jesus and his disciples. Now, under God's law, it was acceptable for someone to pick some grain while walking through someone else's field, and this would not be stealing. So that's not what's unlawful here. It's completely appropriate if you're walking through someone else's field, and if you just picked a little bit. Now, you could not go to someone else's field and start, like, harvesting a large section of it. That would be stealing. But if you're just hungry mid-afternoon and you're walking through, you could take some grain and eat it. That's acceptable. And as also as we look at this, we, we don't think Jesus' disciples were so hungry that they were on the verge of starving. If they were, it would also be acceptable on the Sabbath to even harvest some in order to survive, but that's not what's going on. Instead, evidently, they're walking along and they're just hungry. I mean, it's sort of like me, like mid-afternoon. Mid-afternoon, I'm a little bit hungry. I could use a Snickers just to kind of keep me going, you know, throughout the day. And that's what's happening here. And so they begin to pick some of this grain. And the Pharisees say this is unlawful because they say what they're doing is work. So they're saying walking through, picking a few grains, working it free, and eating. And they're saying what you're doing is harvesting is what the category they would be applying this to. Now, certainly, harvesting an entire field would have been contrary to God's design of not working and resting on the Sabbath, but it's hard to argue that this few hungry disciples, just taking a few grains, are actually doing work. But the Pharisees have moved over into legalism. They have rules beyond what God commanded. And like so many legalists, it wasn't just enough for them to keep these but they wanted to impose these on others as well. They've placed themselves as watchdogs, watching others to make sure no one is violating God's command. 
Now, it's debatable and seems most likely that they weren't actually breaking the law of God, as I said. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't even try to argue the point. He's not interested actually in that debate. But he takes their accusation and he wants to teach some actually some more substantial truths. And we see Jesus confront their elevation of traditions and extra human regulations. And he does this by pointing them to the scriptures. So he says twice in verse 3 and verse 5, he says to them, have you not read? Knowing that they actually have read because they were experts in the scriptures. But he points them to the scriptures and then he says, verse 7, if you had known and they should have known had they read the scriptures. So here, in order to address these extra regulations, Jesus takes them to the Bible, to the scriptures. Jesus brings them first to an incident we see in 1 Samuel 21. David had been anointed as the king, but he was not yet king. Now, one day he would become the greatest king of Israel, but not yet. And at this point in 1 Samuel 21, he was actually on the run from the current king. King Saul was trying to kill David. So David and his men are on the, on the run, and they come to Nob, where the tabernacle was at the time. And David went to the priest, explained that he and his men were hungry, and asked that the priest would give to them what's called the bread of the presence. Special bread that was placed in the tabernacle in worship of God that no one except the priests were supposed to eat. No one was supposed to eat this. But David comes and says, can we have the bread? And the priest gave it to him. And notice in our text, Jesus mentions that example, and he doesn't condemn David for breaking the law because of who David was. David was the anointed king, the anointed one of God. So Jesus is saying that there can be some who because of their position, their authority, they're able to do some things that are otherwise prohibited. That was true of King David. And here Jesus is subtly making the argument, it's true of him as well. For he's the greater David. He's the greater king who has come. So these disciples can do it because they're with Jesus, Jesus, the king. Then in verse 5, Jesus points them to the law of God. And if you were to go and read in Numbers 28, you'd see that they're a description of sacrifices that had to be made on the Sabbath. So all of God's people are to rest from work on the Sabbath, but the priests were supposed to make these sacrifices. Now, in order for the priest to make these sacrifices, the priest would be doing work. So the priests are supposed to do work on the, sac- on, the, on the Sabbath to carry out these sacrifices, but they would be doing work, therefore violating the Sabbath. So was it wrong for the priest to do one thing and violate another? For these two commands seemingly are in conflict. But of course, one takes precedence over another. The worship of the temple was greater. So the priests, Jesus says, were guiltless when they did this work. And we understand there are some things that in in most situations could be wrong, but in very few situations that might be actually right. So for instance, a number of years ago, our family came home to our place. We came to our place, our front door had been either kicked open or busted open. Clearly, someone had broken in to our home. And we walked in. Someone has broken in, and yet the law 
had not been broken. Now, by definition, that would seem to be breaking and entering, for they literally broke the door and entered. However, the reason someone broke in is because the, the building was on fire. So there was a fire outside. The firemen came to our door wanting to save anyone who was in there. The door was locked. So they kicked the door open, actually an act of grace and kindness to make sure no one was in there in harm's way. So what they did, which would normally be against the law, was actually a kind, gracious, loving thing for them to do. So there are times when things that would normally be wrong are actually right, and so it was for the priests. Yes, they were to work on the Sabbath, but it was a good and right, God-glorifying thing. They were in no way guilty for doing that. And Jesus makes an argument here, continuing, look at verse 6. After he sums that up, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So he addresses temple worship, and then he said, but, but someone greater than the temple is here. Now, this is a truly massive statement in the ear of any of the Jewish people at that time. For what could be greater than the temple? The temple was at the very center of the life of the Jewish people where God had come near to them. It was their identity around the temple. And now Jesus said, something greater has come. Well, Jesus is referring to himself. For he had come to fulfill, complete all the temple had done. And now Jesus would be the true temple, the place where God and people meet. So God had done something beautiful, wonderful, gracious in setting up the temple. And now something so much more glorious has been provided in the coming of Jesus, the true temple. Then in verse 7, Jesus points to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. He quotes that where it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, we don't want to misunderstand this. Here, God was not saying in Hosea that sacrifices were wrong at the time. For God had ordained sacrifice in the temple. Now, he had set them up. He was saying, though, that heartless sacrifices are wrong. So he says, don't just go through the motions of sacrifice if your heart is far from me. You should have a heart of mercy and compassion for others, even as you do these right rituals that I have given to you. And so Jesus is pointing out the lack of mercy that these Pharisees have in their legalism. And then Jesus concludes with one more stunning statement in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you've been with us in Matthew, Jesus has been taking this title already for himself, the Son of Man. That's from the book of Daniel. And so Jesus has been saying, I'm the Son of Man. And now he says, the Son of Man, meaning himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this was quite an audacious statement for Jesus to make because in the Old Testament, God is the Lord of the Sabbath. Clearly, God's the, the creator of the Sabbath. And now Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And again, as we've seen elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus is making clear that he claims that he is God. So friends, we want to see what this teaches us about Jesus. He's making these controversial, significant, outrageous claims that aren't necessarily obvious to us. But we see just how controversial they are. For just a few moments, we're going to see at the end of our passage that the Pharisees will plot to kill him based on these things. Now, just at a surface reading, we might say, I'm not exactly sure what Jesus is saying about the temple, about David, about Lord of the Sabbath, and why in the world would the Pharisees want to kill him after that? It's because they understand what Jesus is saying, 
He's claiming to be God. So in their mind, he's a blasphemer. He's blaspheming God because they don't think he is God. So therefore, he should be killed. So that shows us just how weighty these statements really were. Now, clearly, Jesus does not use the words, I am God. But when he says he's greater than the King David, when he says something greater than the temple has come, when he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, make no mistake, they understood him to clearly be claiming to be God. Now, some try to teach you, even in our city, that Jesus never claimed to be God. And that's certainly true that he never used those specific words. In the Gospels, we never have Jesus say, I am God. But the Gospels are filled with all sort of illusions where Jesus clearly claims to be God, like our text today, though he may not use those specific words. So you, if you're not a Christian, or, or people in our city, if they want to argue that Jesus isn't God, they're certainly entitled to that opinion. But it's just not accurate to say that Jesus didn't claim to be God. Because he actually claims to be God again and again across the Gospels. We also want to be alert to how we apply this to our own lives. Because the reality is, each and every one of us are prone to legalism. Even if you're not a Christian, we all begin to make rules that we impose upon ourselves to live well in this world. Or we impose these rules on others. And certainly, Christians do this as well. So in our own legalism, we we take some things and we add to what the scriptures say. Teachings, commands, requirements that we begin to expect of ourselves. And, And like most legalists, it's not enough for us to expect them of ourselves. We often want others to do them as well. So friends, as Christians, we must be careful of our hearts that so easily sort of drift into legalism, focusing on the actions obedience that's beyond what God has said, and often holding others to those standards as well. Our two kids grew up in this church, and it's the only church they've ever known. So when they both went away to college, first they had to make a decision when they went to college, one, would they go to church or not? And then they decided to go to church. They had to decide where would they go to church? And so they began to go to a different church. They also had to begin to think through, okay, what is it that is essential in a church? What are perhaps preferences that they were a part of Hope Fellowship Church but aren't required? What are requirements that are necessary for any church to be a true church? So they had to wrestle with, is it essential for the pastor and his family to sit on the front row on the front left? No, they probably should, but, but that's not required. Is it essential for the pastor to preach long sermons even on hot days? Again, probably should, but no, it's not, not essential. And they might have said, is it, you know, kind of weak to have air conditioning in the facility? No, I hope they're in air conditioning this morning, wherever they are, right? That's not an essential to not have air conditioning. So they had to move from what's a preference, what they've experienced, to what's essential. What is essential is a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church that builds their life upon reading and praying and singing God's word, that that celebrates baptism and the Lord's Supper together. Those are the essentials, not preferences or practices that might be true of us. And so, friend, I, I imagine in your own heart, you have some preferences, which is fine. Just be careful of not moving from preference to requirement, either for yourself or for others or for your church. We should also see that there is some value in traditions in the Christian faith 
We as Christians are not to live disconnected from tradition, but Jesus makes clear that Scripture must be authoritative over tradition. These traditions around the Sabbath were well-grounded, well-known by God's people. But Jesus comes and says, haven't you read? Look to the Scriptures. The Scriptures must be authoritative over tradition. So as God's people today, we we don't live disconnected from tradition. We're we're helped by the tradition of the church. We're, We're helped by creeds and teachings across the centuries. But Scripture must always be authoritative. Now, based on what we see here as Jesus critiques some of these traditions, some might take our text today and think that it's teaching that that really to, to follow Jesus, there's almost no rituals, no rhythms that must be done. And so really to follow Jesus is basically just you and Jesus, your Bible, you know, a Spotify playlist, and maybe a, a sermon on video. And that's really all that's essential in order to know and follow Christ. But friends, the scriptures would not support that path. For, for in the Old Testament, God created these rituals, these rituals that were being misapplied. God had created them. God created the temple and many rhythms that were essential to that. So these were good and right gifts from God. Now, now in the New Testament, there has been great change because Christ has come. So we don't go to a temple. We no longer make sacrifices for Christ has created those. But in the New Testament, it's clear that now there are some new rhythms in the life of the church. The church gathers on the first day of the week, on Sunday together, because that's the day that Christ was raised from the dead. We gather together, we we sing together, we pray together, we hear God's word preached. The New Testament is clear on that. And so much of what the New Testament calls an an individual Christian to do can only be done in the life of the congregation. When he tells us to serve one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another. If it's just you alone with Jesus in your apartment, there's no one to offend you and therefore for you to forgive. There's no one for you to serve. There's no one for you to love. And so, friend, this idea that I think is so prevalent in America today is actually just foreign to the New Testament. So, friend, if you're new to Boston, it's that time of year, lots of people are moving to the city. We we just want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here. It will cool down, and it will be much more pleasant before long. But let me encourage you, if you're a Christian, do search for a local church. And in time, and I encourage you to do that briskly, find a local church. Put down roots. Don't try to go it alone. It's not for your good to do that. It's also not good for the mission of Jesus in our city. It's not helpful to have Christians sort of just dispersed, going it alone. But together, in local churches, there's much work that we can do. Now, for all of us, I think through COVID, many of our normal rhythms were disrupted. And it takes a while to to pick those back up. Some of them feel very foreign to us. I want to just urge you to see the value of some of these rhythms that God gives us in the Scriptures like gathering in person on Sunday. Just build this into your life. It's an important rhythm. Gathering with God's people for for meals outside of this. Even this morning, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper for the first time by passing the trays since COVID. And it's been so long that even this morning, I found myself a little bit nervous trying to remember, like, how do we do that? Because it's just a rhythm we haven't done in so long. So if some aspects of the church life feels foreign to you because it's been a while, I would encourage you to keep pushing forward into that for your own good. 
God has created us for these rhythms. And following God's rhythms is not legalism. When we add things and we think we're right with God through what we do, but God has given us these rhythms as a gift for us. We've seen the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus teaches us. He gives us commands. We saw the great Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is not giving us this life free from commands, but he's giving us a life that's truly free when we live within his commands and within his teachings, within the good rhythms he has for his church. Now, what are we to do with this idea of Sabbath today? Are Christians supposed to observe the Sabbath like the people of God did in the Old Testament? So first, we want to see that Jesus came and fulfilled the Sabbath. If you want to read more about this, you can go to Hebrews chapter 4 this week. And so we see that Jesus now is our true rest. He gives to us Sabbath rest. And so with Jesus, things change from observing Sabbath on Saturday. Now God's people gather, as I mentioned, on Sunday, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So we don't observe it in the same way, but we do still see the, the wisdom of God that rest is a good gift from God. So there's wisdom for God's people when we're able to, to on Sunday, to, to cease from our working, to, to join in the rhythms of the local church, to seek to slow down and consider God on this important day. So I'd encourage you just to build your life around gathering with God's people. But beyond only this service when we're together, even plan ahead, like I want to come and gather and worship, but also I want to have time where I'm not rushed following the service so I can connect with people afterwards. Leave some time for that. That's also a part of what we need is, is meeting someone we've never met before and seeing someone we've known for decades. Make time even to perhaps go to lunch with someone or share dinner together as well. One of the rhythms here at Hope is the first Sunday of each month, so that's tonight at five. We gather for, for an hour, and in that hour, we'll sing together, we'll pray together, and we'll hear God's word preached, and following the service, we'll have a meal outside in the parking lot. So, so add that and join us tonight. So we see accusation. But then second, and very briefly, we see restoration as the scene changes in verses 9 through 14. So the scene changes from the field to the synagogue. Jesus enters the synagogue, and there's a man in the synagogue that we're told has a withered hand. So the Pharisees asked Jesus another question, seeking to corner him. They asked this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they see this man with a withered hand as someone they can use for their own purposes. They have no mercy or compassion towards this man. They just want to use him against Jesus. So the question is, how would Jesus see this man? How would Jesus respond to this man? Now, the understanding at the time, underneath the Sabbath rules, is that if you were able to heal and someone's life was in danger, it was okay to heal on the Sabbath if their life was in danger. If their life wasn't in danger, you shouldn't do it on the Sabbath. Now, this man's life was clearly not in danger. So in the mind of the Pharisees, he should wait until tomorrow. Like, look, whatever's going to happen here, if Jesus is going to heal him, he should do it tomorrow or later this week. It's just not urgent. In response to that, though, look at verse 11. Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not hold, take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
So here we see the brilliance of Jesus as he asked these Pharisees a question, a hypothetical question. If they have a sheep on the Sabbath, it falls into a pit. What will you do? The sheep's life is not in danger, but will you leave it until tomorrow? And Jesus is saying, no, you wouldn't. You would rescue the sheep. He knew that they would do that. That's what anybody would have done in that day. Sheep are valuable. They're God's creation. But how much more value is a person than a sheep? So like the sheep, the man wasn't in immediate danger. That is true. But Jesus had the power to restore the man right then and there. So by Jesus' response, he traps them and silences them. And then Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. And this man with the withered hand stretches it out. And his hand is perfectly restored. So Jesus had said he was greater than the temple, that he was greater than David. He said he's the Lord of the Sabbath, and now he gives this sign of this healing, evidence of what he has claimed. And Jesus shows that doing good is always right and good. And a right understanding of God's word, of the teachings of Jesus, will point us to doing good and give us wisdom in what doing good looks like. So Jesus restores this man's hand with only a word. Now this, like other healings during Jesus' ministry, was a temporary sign, for this man would eventually die, but a temporary sign that was a glimpse of Jesus' eternal kingdom. Because the day is coming in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more shriveled hands. There'll be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness, no more sin, no more death. So these temporary signs are pointers to that. That day is coming and that is a glorious future hope. But Jesus came not only to restore some that he touched in miracles, but to provide a deeper, eternal restoration to any, to all who would turn to Christ by faith. And this restoration will be provided through Jesus' own suffering and death on a cross, where Jesus would stretch out his hands on that cross. And Jesus would go to the cross because of the actions of these opponents. Look at verse 14. It says, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So notice the irony here. Jesus had said, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus did good on the Sabbath in this healing, the Pharisees, because of the good that he did. Now devote themselves to planning his death. So these who had been so diligent to, to watch his disciples, accusing them of working, was simply picking some grain. They're doing work now, no doubt, as they're planning, plotting the death of Jesus. So they would conspire to kill him and they would in time put him to death. And friends, in order to do good, the ultimate good, Jesus would purposefully, willfully go to the cross. That the perfect son of God, through his substitutionary sacrificial death in our place, he would pay for our sin. He would take our rebellion so that we would receive his righteousness. He was buried, raised on the third day to bring about restoration, restoration of our relationship with God, reconciliation. Adoption into God's own family. True rest now in Christ. The promise of eternal rest. 
And this rest that comes from Christ by the Spirit every day. So we're empowered by Christ tomorrow to do good as the Spirit is at work in you. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you'd spend part of your hot Sunday morning with us. And our desire, friend, is that you would consider Christ. We, we do hope you see what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming to be God. And he is the merciful Savior who came to rescue through his own sacrifice to restore, to redeem. And friends, for those of us who are Christians, as we await this future complete restoration, the good news is Christ brings restoration in our lives now. Not fully at this time, and not complete, but restoration by God's grace is possible. So we experience now the complete forgiveness of sins. Now, by the grace of God, brokenness can be mended in time. Pain can be redeemed. Suffering is not pointless. Relationships can be restored. And friends, so often in the Christian life, this is not immediate. It happens over years, decades, and so often is not fully realized in this life. But Christian, have hope. Jesus restores. And he's working out restoration in your life today. And he will continue that tomorrow and next year and every year that you have on this earth. Friends, the gospel of Jesus is a message of hope and restoration. And that is good news for us and for the world.